0: Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Freddie Gray on his time spent on the Polish-Ukrainian border, Lionel Shriver on the return of actual badness, and Philip Patrick on the strange East Asian practice of hiring a white monkey. First up, Freddie Gray. On the Ukrainian
1: side of the Polish border, near a place called Shenyi, where the refugee crisis is brewing, an old black man approaches us. Am I in Moldova? he asks gently in French, pointing to the fence. No, I tell him, that's Poland. Moldova is 250 miles away. The man shrugs and returns to the endless queue of North African migrants. Several young men tell us that they have been there for four days wanting to cross. The Ukrainian guards hold baseball bats. British newspapers have reported shocking racism. At the border, and of course, it's easier to get into Poland if you have a European or British passport and white skin. Yet, we witness no ill behavior. It's just a very cruel situation. I'm with my colleague Paul Wood, the veteran war reporter, and Adam Holloway, an ex army captain and a Tory MP. Adam is in trouble because ITV, his old employer, has done a story saying Downing Street has criticized him for. Quotes, travelling to Ukraine against government advice. It's complete bollocks, says Adam. We stay in Lviv, Ukraine's most Western and nationalist major city. The citizens are highly anxious, though not as hysterical as many Brits on Twitter. Lvivians are eager to convey the sense of a great war effort to visiting journalists, and it's hard not to be won over. Old men stop and say, British, yes and give you a thumbs up. When we say, if you win the war, they interrupt. When, not if. They call Putin Hitler, and Bin Laden a terrorist. They insist that every Ukrainian will fight to the death. And they tend to well up, as they say so. It's inspiring. It's also fanatical. Lvivians are paranoid, understandably, about Russian saboteurs infiltrating their city and sowing disinformation. They are reluctant to give names and worried about what we might be recording. In a school sports ground, we see a pair of young girls scrubbing off graffiti, which they believe might be enemy markings. It is strange because it disappears and keeps coming back, says one. Another local tells us proudly that they have developed code words to catch out these saboteurs in their midst. They say, for instance that Russians have no idea how to say palyanista, a type of bread. They would say palinista, or something, scoffs one. Worryingly, I can't hear the difference. Even hipsters are getting in on the act. The Pravda Brewery, which in normal times doubles up as a concert venue, has stopped making beer and is manufacturing Molotov cocktails. The label on the bottom says Putin kuyol. Putin is a dickhead. Taras Maselko, the PR guy with a cool haircut, is happy to share the recipe. Three cups polystyrene, two cups grated soup, 500 millilitres gas, 100 millilitres oil, one jambo tampon fuse. Do they work, we ask? They did in 2014, says Taras. We sit down to lunch with Ior Shmeshko, a retired general and founder of the Strength and Honour Party. Over Bosch he gives us a detailed lecture about Ukraine's origins and Russia's. An antidote, he says, to this Putin and his barbaric understanding of history. He cites Herodotus, Marx, Churchill and Sting. I hope the Russians love their children too. He urges us to ask the British government for more air defence systems and Javelin anti-tank kit. When asked about Russia's goals, he says... This is question not for general, but for an astrologer. He also says Ukraine will never be defeated and promises that if the Russians do occupy his country, they will never be safe in any place. The international support for Volodymyr Zelensky is another source of pride. A different senior official says the real clown today is not Zelensky, the ex-comedian, but Petro Poroshenko, the businessman turned president, Zelensky replaced in 2019. Poroshenko has had himself filmed in military fatigues, sporting a Kalashnikov, swearing to defend the homeland. We don't believe him, says our official. Poroshenko looked especially silly when one of the troops standing behind him made the clip viral because the magazine in his rifle slipped out, while Petro made his creed guerre. Who needs real war when we have a culture war? I follow some pro-Russian voices on social media, mostly English-speaking alt-right kids sharing war porn. They like to suggest that Ukrainians are LARPing about their military campaign, i.e. hamming it up for a Western audience. That's not how I see it. In the St Peter and Paul Church in the centre of Lviv, we see a Ukrainian boy in military fatigues marrying his sweetheart before he goes to fight. The priest puts crowns on their heads and trots them about the altar as the pious ladies at the back of the church sob and cross themselves over and
0: over. That's not LARPing. It's heroic. It's terrible, too. That was Freddie Gray. Next, it's Lionel Shriver.
2: The return of actual badness. In the spring of 2020, I advanced an abnormally hopeful proposition that one blessing that might arise from a pandemic with otherwise few redeeming features was a cultural sobering up. Maybe we'd regain a sense of perspective about the trivial non-problems of identity politics once finally faced with a proper problem. Boy, was I wrong. Instead, what proved a relatively mild disease in the big, smallpoxian picture fostered an even greater frenzy of ineffectual pettiness. Park benches wrapped with police tape, government edicts about scotch eggs, fisticuffs in supermarkets over thin, gap-prone facial napkins. Rather than reveal the content of the culture wars as meeting the textbook definition of neurosis, being beset by problems of your own invention, the pandemic allowed the same rival teams to reconstitute around a new false dichotomy. Who has or hasn't partaken of a certain medical prophylaxis when the Nostrum made the experimental population no safer company than the control group? Worst of all, virtually the entire Western world jettisoned every civil liberty its peoples had ever imagined their birthright going into throes of unrestrained authoritarianism, police overreach, and state micromanagement of everyday life. Last month's scenes in Ottawa of police arresting truckers at gunpoint for protesting vaccine mandates were ominously of a piece with this week's scenes in Moscow of Russian police roughly arresting protesters against the war in Ukraine. Still, Another opportunity to restore a sense of proportion presents itself. Many of us, myself included, may have had a hard time quite getting our heads round Vladimir Putin's full-tilt military invasion of a vast democratic country with a population two-thirds the size of the UK's because it's an event on a scale we'd forgotten was possible. The incursion is killing innocents, destroying critical infrastructure, and in due course, driving perhaps millions to flee their homes while profoundly destabilizing the post-Cold War order. This gratuitous assault is, I submit, actual badness. We're not used to actual badness. We're used to fake badness. Crusaders fighting fake badness tend to locate malignity in country. Statues, for example must be toppled with great moral urgency. Although, funnily enough, bronze tributes to the long dead rarely seem to land cruise missiles on blocks of flats. While British constabularies are, however incredibly, acting within their remit who threaten you with arrest for doing so, believe it or not, using one pronoun when its referent would prefer a different pronoun is fake badness. The ghastly things people you've never met did hundreds of years ago that are a done deal and you can't change, that's fake badness too, as opposed to actual badness. The terrible things that people whose names and faces you know all too well are doing right now. And I'm sorry to ruffle the feathers of all those joyfully huffy Boris bashers on the broadcast news, but a wine and cheese party that's Ooh, ooh against the rules, is transparently fake badness, even though you could make a case that the rules themselves, in their totality, contained a soupçon of actual badness. Vladimir Putin is an actual bad man who, after invading his neighbor with 190,000 troops, had the eye-popping chutzpah to put his nuclear forces on alert because Western leaders had made aggressive remarks. In comparison, many of those Western leaders, having turned a blind eye to their nation's energy requirements and the grim realities of geopolitics for the sake of posturing environmentalism, surely qualifies as criminally stupid. The calling such negligence outright wicked might be a stretch the Donald's continued glorification of his poster boy Putin, even after Ukraine's invasion, may come closer to genuine wickedness, though if Trump is damaging his own re-election prospects, he's doing God's work. In any event, what does not qualify as actually bad is claiming that the British Empire accomplished one or two good things along the way. Slipping up and saying colored people rather than the nearly identical people of color. Citing the obese rather than people living with obesity. Pronouncing both syllables of the N-word when quoting James Baldwin. Suggesting that pubescent girls think twice before lopping off their breasts. Putting shoe polish on your face teaching a curriculum in the very heart of Western civilization that includes a few icons of Western civilization, asserting the existence of biological sex, or arguing that experience, capability, and competence might possibly constitute employment criteria superior to the overtly immaterial matter of skin pigmentation. How about actual misinformation? Try this. Putin describing the Ukrainian government as a gang of drug addicts and neo-Nazis, which is the quality of propaganda you'd expect from a six-year-old. Or claiming that troops are amassing along the borders of a weaker country purely to perform military exercises, i.e., that an intrigue quacks like a duck, but isn't a duck. VATS. Actual misinformation. Questioning the efficacy of masks and lockdowns or highlighting underreported side effects of vaccines is fake misinformation. Many of the pandemic online posts censored by big tech have constituted either simple differences of opinion in a free society or inconvenient information for the state. The high stakes headlines of the past week. Involve authentic morality, thereby exposing what's been passing for the ethics of our day as indulgent entertainment. Decolonizations, recontextualizations, gender neutralizations, it's all a load of onanistic diversionary crap, and the West having shoved its head up its backside is one reason that Putin feels free to do whatever he likes. We're not scary because we've made ourselves ridiculous. Oh, the new enlightenment isn't likely to last. But for now, Americans and Europeans seem suddenly to be awakening to what truly matters. We're remembering there is such a thing as evil, and this pathologically vain usurpation of Ukraine is what it looks like. In sharp contrast to the absurd plastic bath toys, we've idiotically mistaken for evil. However briefly, for once we in the fractious free world seem to be uniting around a shared morality, a grounded mutual grasp of malice. It's been such a relief to finally read the New York Times and believe what the articles say. That
0: was Lionel Shriver. And finally, Philip Patrick.
3: About 10 years ago, I was interviewed in Tokyo for a job as a fake Catholic priest, performing wedding ceremonies for Japanese couples who wanted the aesthetics of a Christian service without all the hassle of actually being Christian. In a room cluttered with tacky plastic religious paraphernalia, I watched a training video of the company's top man, an American Tom Cruise lookalike in a cassock, marrying a young couple. I was offered the job, and it paid well, But, fearing I might fluff my lines, collapse into giggles, or worst of all, come face to face with an ex-girlfriend approaching down the aisle, I turned it down. That was the closest I ever came to accepting a white monkey job, a term used in Japan and China for a position that requires little or no skill and no qualifications at all, apart from the essential one of being a Westerner. White monkey jobs range from modeling and acting, For people who wouldn't be asked to model or act anywhere else, to being a fake company spokesperson. White men and women can even be employed as office staff, who have no actual duties, but simply lend the working environment a more sophisticated, international ambience. The phenomenon of white monkey work has been around for decades. In Japan, in the 1970s and 80s, the economy exploded, traditional business etiquette began to decline, and the marketing potential of foreigners became apparent. For example, the fairytale wedding of Charles and Diana is believed to have given fake Christian weddings a huge boost. The copywriter Angus Waycott, in his memoir, Paper Doors, confesses how he helped pay the bills in his early days in Tokyo by working as a catwalk model, even though he was a gray-haired middle-aged man. While TV and ad makers would naturally have preferred real stars, and occasionally bagged them, Sean Connery's Ito ham commercial where he utters one word, honmono, genuine, in his drawling fountain bridge burr while holding a packet of meat remains a classic. They were happy enough to make do with any old halfway presentable gaijin or foreigner, and they still are today. Immigrants account for only 2% of Japan's population, and the majority of them live in big cities, so many Japanese have extremely limited exposure to other cultures. This, combined with a native bashfulness, has fostered an intense curiosity in, and a wish to observe, but not necessarily engage with, foreigners. Foreignness is often presented in a familiar and easily accessible form. A good example is the fake medieval English village called British Hills in Fukushima, where tea can be taken in the Ascot Cafe or a pint downed in the Falstaff pub. There is no word for cliché in Japanese. In China, white monkey business is aimed at dealing with reputational difficulties. Made in China still has limited appeal for quality-conscious consumers, so employing a respectable-looking foreigner as a fake CEO or distinguished client can help. I've heard of a foreigner who was paid to be present at the opening of a new development complex and pose as some sort of emissary of Obama, feigning interest in the venture. The real estate business is a particularly fruitful sector for white monkey work. The boom years of the early 2000s saw a huge number of ambitious new housing estates shoot up around provincial Chinese cities, which were given utopian names such as Dream, Paradise and Heavenly. In reality, they were often drab, remote, unappealing and expensive. If sales prove sluggish, both business and face must be saved. Foreigners are hired to pretend to be company engineers or executives for photo shoots, or just to loiter around the housing complex looking as if they belong, transforming it into an international city of the future. The TV work for white monkeys is a bit different in China too. National pride and cultural point scoring are key elements. Anyone taking a bit part as a foreigner in a Chinese TV drama can expect scenes that start with them acting in an aggressive and condescending manner towards a local and end with them being summarily humiliated. If this all seems a little exploitative, it is well to consider that white monkey work can have many benefits. The comic strip series Charisma Man, which ran in the magazine The Alien, portrayed the adventures of a weedy Canadian burger flipper who is transformed into a muscular superstar on arrival in Japan. Charisma Man traded on his foreignness to earn money more easily and acquire girlfriends more beautiful than he could have hoped for back home. His employers and
0: partners seemed happy enough. So who's exploiting whom? That was Philip Patrick. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.